Welcome to episode 103 of the Game Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and this is my co-host. It's Christian. On this week's episode, Christian and I both watched a documentary called Tar Creek, and I'm going to talk about an animated series I recently watched called Over the Garden Wall. All right, and this week, Christian, you picked uh, the, the documentary Tar Creek for us to watch. This was released back in 2009. Generally speaking, what does this cover? So this covers what, uh, at the time, and I believe is still the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history, it involves essentially the poisoning of soil and groundwater by lead from a nearby mine in Oklahoma, and all of the uh, various implications and consequences of that. Yes, and this is... It, it's funny because when you originally pitched this to me, you're like, this is the worst ecological disaster. I was expecting is something like the Exxon or BP oil spill, something like that had just happened and then it just caused mass uh, ecological damage. Whereas this one was decades in the making before anyone even realized there was an issue. <laughs> right. And I mean, it's still kind of ongoing to this day. Right. So this was directed by Matt Myers, who I did not see he really directed anything else that um i had ever heard of before and this seemed to be more of a personal project for him but i gotta ask you man what did you think about the actual filming on this because i i I really felt like he filmed this on a 2009 phone it's very possible this felt to me like it was made by or for like a local news broadcast Like, watching a lot of the interviews and a lot of the footage, this felt like I was watching, like, my small-town, hometown news broadcasting. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt. But they did, like, random black-and-white shots. And then some of the things they filmed without with with, uh, a tripod or whatever they were using was so shaky and grainy that it was hard to look at. Like, when they tried to do the shots of some of the creeks and stuff. It was very, yeah, you could tell that this was a, a low-budget kind of passion project that this guy wanted to just document and get out there. And that's not to say that it, it's it's bad in any way. Like, it was shocking, and I, I'm happy that he made it, regardless of, like, how he was able to get it done. Yeah, and, and another weird thing about watching a documentary from 2009 is especially about something that was, you know, they kind of ended in the middle of the remediation efforts. Like, where are they 12 years later or or whatever, 11 years later? Um, it was really interesting to me. And I tried to look it up and, I, you know, I found a couple things. But generally speaking, like, there, it doesn't seem like this is as talked about as you would imagine it being. I I agree. I just kind of stumbled upon this on Amazon because I watched Aaron Brockovich, which is on Amazon prime. And I really like that movie. And this was one of the suggestions. And I, I just kind of clicked on it on a whim. I had never even heard of this. And it, it, that, that stunned me more than anything, I think. Yeah. And, and what's crazy. Well, what I do like about the documentary is they basically break this down into different parts. So one is like, Oh, the lead poisoning is bad. They're like, how do we get here? And then, you know, they go to, oh, the remediation efforts were also uh, just completely bungled. And then buyouts were completely just messed up. So every part of the way, like, you're like, okay, it's getting better now and it doesn't. So let's start with just the the general background of this town. So th- this was a 
basically the line lead mining mecca of the world during World War One and parts of World War Two. So there was just tons of lead deposits in this place. Which yeah, they then like hollowed out basically everything under the town to try and get to to this lead and then what happened to it afterwards is where the problems start to stack up and what's crazy about the mining in this to me it maybe it's just because from where we're from but coal mining and stuff is done in mountains you know and i i know some houses have mining underneath them and stuff but generally speaking like west virginia pennsylvania those areas you're mining into a mountain Oklahoma doesn't really have mountains like they are literally just mining into an entire area of where a town is they would say they they would dig so high while underground that sometimes they'd just stop when they saw tree roots which is crazy in mining terms that was bananas to hear when they said that that they stopped at the roots yes um and so because they're doing so much of this lead in uh, eventually these mines slowly were abandoned. What had happened was water would fill into these abandoned mines and eventually leak into um, the streams and everyone's or the groundwater, basically everyone's water supplies. And the I was dumbstruck by the amount of lead in they found in some of the kids they were testing. Yeah, it was like 43%. Yes. Which, you know, I don't know very much about lead. I've had, you know, I've learned about it a little bit in health classes or science classes or whatever. But I know it's one thing you don't really want in your body because you, (laughs) I still don't understand if you can effectively get rid of it once it's in there. You can get rid of it. The problem is that it gets taken up by like your nervous system. And so the, the lead eventually leaves your body, but it damages you developmentally especially if it gets into you while you're young and so it it like stunts your uh mental development so that like the lead will eventually leave your body but like once it's done its damage the damage is done yes it's not something you can heal back from and and so they did uh testing of the kids in this community and they said 43% of the children in mining communities had an elevated blood, uh, elevated lead blood levels. And so I was curious. I looked at the data from 2012 to 2017 in the U.S. The highest I saw for a year for an entire state uh, was 7%. I think that was Pennsylvania, but most were under 1%. Good God. So that's just insane. And everyone's like, yeah, these we always thought these kids had, you know, developed like just issues or whatever and now you're saying like there's a good chance that that child had been blood you know had gotten lead poisoning who yeah this is this was rough to watch like i i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest like by the end of this i was like despondent (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the problems arise though because any mitigation efforts that they undertake are going to be undercut by the fact that all of the lead waste is still there Oh, yeah. So how they disposed of it was they basically just dug it up and there's giant mounds around the town of just super fine, like, particle, like, think probably finer than sand particles, honestly, because it looks like sand. Um, So you're thinking of that level of just lead particles that can be released into the air. Yeah, they just look like giant sand dunes. 
And I'm going to be honest. I, I looked at this and, and I've, I've cropped a picture into our notes here, but I looked at this town from like Google satellites and you can see the piles of, of lead waste just everywhere. It's just these big white, like polka dots all over the landscape around this town or, and all inside the town. Like it's incredible. You know, Christian, I bet if you combined all of these sand piles, it, it's bigger than the town itself. Um, it's got to be. Just trying to do a quick look here. It's hard for me to tell on the scale of how big each of those plots are, but I know once you get out more west, they have a much uh, better way to tell how many acres there are <laughs> because everything squares. And yeah. usually it's, I, I want to say it was like 640 squares they based on, but I, I can't remember. But there's a way to figure this out. But there are... I would guess hundreds of acres of just this stuff. And the kids would like play on it. And I'm going to be honest. I would (laughs) have like if I was a kid growing up in this town and like, I obviously didn't necessarily know better. And I just saw it like what is essentially an enormous sand dune in my backyard. I'd be there every day. Yeah. Well, what's crazy to me is I guess, you know, I don't know the history people, I feel like it's been known that lead has been developmentally dangerous or dangerous to development for years. I, do, I guess I don't know how many years, at least two decades, because I knew growing up mm-hmm. you had to be wary of lead. But did no one realize that, that these sand piles were just like they didn't do the tests that they knew like, oh, this is highly concentrated amounts of lead versus like this rock, which is, you know, lesser amounts because they went over that. It's just crazy that no one thought that this could be an issue. And the fact that even once they found out it was an issue, nothing was done about it until, or at least, like, the the final steps weren't taken until the town started to, like, collapse on itself. Right. Well, I mean, their first mitigation efforts were they they came back and they're like, oh, okay, uh, there's lead in the water, so let's just (laughs) keep flushing more and more water to try and, I think, flush out all the lead from the mines. Was that the plan? Well, they said in the documentary that the the first people that came in thought it was a surface water problem, which doesn't oh. really make any sense to me. Like, where did they think the lead was coming from? The rain? Right. And so, yeah, they were just kind of flushing the groundwater, and obviously that was doing nothing because it was all bubbling out from the mine drainage. Yeah. And so then the second mitigation effort was... They determined, okay, it's from the soil. So they went through everyone's yard in the town, dug up... They they kind of explain it where they dig up three inches if they still found it. They keep digging until basically uh, there is no more lead in the soil. And, and then they made the dumb decision of filling it in with clay instead of some other <laughs> dirt. And then everyone's houses started flooding. And they didn't <laughs> they didn't do anything with all the giant piles of the lead sitting around the town. I I don't understand the idea of the waterproof clay. Like all that's going to do is keep the like lead tainted groundwater close to the surface where people will absorb it. Yeah. My guess is just someone didn't think this through, you know, <laughs> they're like, yeah, we normally put clay here. It's fine. You know, it, or it's like, it was cheap. No one really thought this through very well was my guess. This, yeah. This was a mess. Like almost every mitigation effort they took in the first couple stages of this either did nothing or actively made things worse. Yeah, dude. <laughs> What's funny, not funny, but like what's crazy is like a lot of these, 
I don't want to say byproducts, but things that are used in manufacturing that you don't really think about, so like lead or whatever. Uh, this reminds me of an issue a lot of towns up in Wisconsin were having because when you're when you frack, you want a very specific type of sand, and this town apparently had like the gold mine of the sand you need. It's like very fine particles, so when you shoot it down, it helps keep everything open, and you can let the the gas um, leak out from the cracks when you uh, frack shale, but what had happened with this town was like that sand just got blown so easily. So it was just so dangerous because people were just inhaling it and it was just killing their lungs, you know? Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of this, like just except it would be like lead is <laughs> flying around that you're breathing in, you know? I, yeah. I can't fathom this. The, the fact that people stayed here for as long as they did knowing that, yeah, they were essentially breathing and drinking and walking all over just poison. So I, I want to talk about all this, and then I kind of want to spend the second part of this talking about the the Native American tribe, because I, I feel like their story in itself just deserves focusing on, and I don't want to dilute it, because the documentary kind of jumped around, and I wish they had focused on one than the other, because I feel like the Native American tribe's issue, like, they faced all the same health issues, but on top of that, they had other issues of not even being able to get money for their land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah, a bunch of people got real screwed in in this, but them in particular. Yeah, so after all these remediation issues uh, failed, they basically came to the conclusion that they should buy out everyone in the town to go move somewhere else, which is in itself, I actually think, a good idea. Sometimes you just need to know when to walk away from a thing because you can't fix it. <laughs> right. And this is something that, I mean, it's it's happened before. A, a lot of the, I was drawing a lot of parallels with Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is like a, a, a different environmental disaster that's kind of been like a pet fascination of mine for years, which is the uh, coal mine there accidentally got lit on fire. Yes. <laughs> and it's been burning for, uh, right now, I think we're at 55 years. And there's enough coal down there to continue burning for another 250 years minimum. And so, yeah, toxic gas and carbon dioxide started just leaking up through the ground and killing things. And then big sinkholes started opening up because the ground was all hollowed out from being burned away. And yeah, eventually the government stepped in, bought all the land and and took their zip code away. But there's still like two or three families that live there. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I actually forgot because they sort of brought this up after the fact. Like, there's an entire, like, subsidence issue where the town is basically falling into, sink, like, giant sinkholes. Right. Yeah, so, like, this town is just, like, not only is the water poison, it's literally falling into a hole. So, after Jim Inhofe basically prevented them from selling the town, it, like, went through in spite of him. They beat the crap out of him in this documentary, which I was pretty pleased about. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a moron. I mean, <laughs> they showed like he's getting money from these guys. Like there is a reason he didn't want to go through and actually help these people. It's because he's getting his pockets lined from these guys, you know. Right. And so once they finally <laughs> then once they finally do they're like, "Okay, here's the money. We're going to do the buyout plan." <sighs> It's the the documentary portrays that the appraisals for everyone's houses were completely botched, which I don't I don't know where I stand on this position. Mm-hmm. Um, it 
I, I talked to my mom about it because she was in real estate for a long time and, and she didn't know exactly what the process was. But I, I was thinking like even if just, just some transparency, I think, would have helped the appraisers quite a bit. Like if they could have pointed and said, like, this is our formula. This is how we arrived at these numbers. Yeah, this this is my problem on this part, because clearly the filmmaker was on the side of the residents, which, you know, I think for the most part, everyone is. They kind of got a <laughs> crappy place to live and were dealt a bad hand with that. They don't have anyone from that company giving their side of how the appraisals were done. And to me, you know, and this is just a me quarter uh, quarterbacking from the couch. It seems <laughs> like the residents didn't understand how appraisals work. And at one point they did show like the, their big, like, Oh, this is why it's all corrupt is one person got $115,000 for house. And one person was appraised at 70,000. And when you look at it, clearly one of the houses is nicer. The one that was appraised at $70,000 was nicer than the $115,000 one. But when they showed like the woman trying to explain it to the lady, like she, you know, she explained the, and they sort of gloss over. She's like, look, no, like, sure, you're using this as a bedroom or whatever, but normally you don't want people walking through the living room to your toilet or whatever. I think she was giving reasons as to why it actually was appraised as it was. And I think normally that probably would be like fair. It's like, okay, this is how we're doing an appraisal. I don't think that people understood, like, I'm pretty sure like appraisals like aren't something you can argue with. Like it's a formula people use, you put it in, and it is what it is. In this scenario, it's clearly different because they're just destroying the houses and they're trying to give her money to buy something something comparable to what she's living in now, which was definitely should have been a little bit higher. But I think I have to imagine they tried to explain the processes and the people just did not agree with them. That's possible. I my my issue with the the scene that you basically described and, and you did mention it like it's one thing if you're selling this house to another person and you're saying like oh this house is valued lower because this bedroom is on the wrong side of the house or whatever and like that's sure gonna affect like sale values for person-to-person transaction but if you're just buying this house to destroy it who cares like yeah. the, the only things to me that should have been taken into account are like the square footage and the like the quality of the like like in what kind of shape is it in. I I, I mean like, at some basic... point I think everyone's going to be mad about something because I was like yeah square footage would probably be a more fair one but then how do you determine like do you have classes and then people are going to argue like well this you know I should be in class A not class B I don't I don't I just I don't think there's a good way to go about this honestly. No, and and to a point, it is all subjective. I just I, I was blown away by the fact that they were taking in like house layout into the value right. of the home when you're just gonna tear it down. I mean, that's 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 very true. Um, that's why, like you said, like transparency probably would have been helpful. But as again, it's hard to tell. Like, where they are saying there is absolutely no transparency, but then you also have a scene where they have an appraisal, an appraiser trying to explain this to a lady. So while you might not agree with what they're saying, it does seem like that there was transparency on trying to explain why you got an appraisal as you did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like the, I, and I don't know, I, I wanted to look into this and then I ran out of time, but it seemed like the filmmaker was probably from here 
And so yeah. it's, it's not necessarily the most objective, but uh, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen at least a little bit, just uh, like a company spokesperson come on and say, this is how we arrived at these numbers. It wasn't as, it wasn't as shady as they're making it out to be or whatever. I'm curious too, because are these appraisals also occurring before or after the financial collapse of, you know, 2008? <laughs> right. That's also going to be a big, big indicator. Yeah, I, I do feel bad because like one woman is like, oh yeah, your house is worth $22,000, which sucks because that is extremely low. Um, mm-hmm. But also they didn't show her. I don't think they showed her house for a reason. I'm guessing that her house was falling apart. That's That was my instinct as well. Like, yeah, that's that's terrible. That's such a low number. But yeah, you, you got to then ask the question. But uh, so I did actually look up a Politico or I found an article on Politico about people who are really mad. So, yeah, so they did a follow up article about it because Scott Pruitt, who was a formerly part of um, he was a former attorney general of Oklahoma. And then he was the I think the head of the EPA under Trump. And yeah. so when he came, you know, when he was getting confirmed and stuff because he was a controversial pick, some stories about this started coming and popping out and Basically, the people who are very mad about um, the appraisal situation tried to get free, like use the Freedom of Information Act to get more information about it. And he invoked, uh, you know, it sounds like, according, you know, according to the article, how correct is it? But it seems like he shadily invoked exceptions to that, so he didn't have to provide the public information. He said he was protecting the people involved because they didn't find any wrongdoing and blah 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 but that i thought that was kind of funny that that came up it came up like 10 years later that people are obviously still very mad about uh their what they perceived as a low ball to what they're owed right well the the buyout was only finished in 2015 and he would have taken over at the epa the next year <laughs> yeah yep and also like he's you know they're sort that sort of alludes to in the article that he's in with jim inhoff who had fought doing this buyout in the first place and they kept saying this isn't a federal issue you know we need the federal government to work with the states for them to remediate but it's at a certain point like you cannot fix you cannot reasonably fix an ecological disaster to a point where it's safe for human habitation in a time frame that makes sense you know oh no certainly not one generation like we're people are going to be dealing with this for decades yeah, I mean, they already have, and it seems like they're nowhere. I I'm also really curious about the process because I saw one of your notes. You're like, why is a doctor heading this appraisal committee? Oh my god, yeah. I I mean, when I saw that it was like a like a board of directors, almost. I guess they would have just kind of picked like trusted members of the community, so that it, it made a little more sense once I saw it in context. But before they showed that, yeah, they were just interviewing this doctor and he'd been just kind of giving medical notes the whole way through, which was great. And then he's like, yeah, we tried to do our best on giving these people fair appraisals. And I'm sitting there thinking, why is this guy talking about real estate appraisals? He's a doctor. Yeah. That's what I mean. So I know like County commissioners, like you can just have random people appointed to public offices, but this, this seemed weird because these were like the heads of the, like heads of a trust for a town so i don't know how like do people vote on that or you appointed i I don't know the process of how you become like a trustee for a town you know (laughs) 
But I, I'm with you. I think it has to be like, oh, these were well off or trusted members of the community or whatever. That that has to be my guess. It was the only thing I could imagine. Like, yeah, I that that really threw me. <laughs> the another thing I also kind of wanted to, I, I do want to point out because the documentary seems to be point a lot of blame at the EPA, and you know the clay mix up I think was bad. But a lot of the time, the EPA is severely underfunded and does not have all that much government like authority. It doesn't have the amount of government authority it needs to actually cure a lot of the problems. Um, yes. Like their hands are tied a lot, so it's like they're they're an easy scapegoat to blame because you know like we paid seventy thousand dollars to fix my yard and they only paid me eighty thousand dollars for my house or whatever. Like that's unfortunate, but to a certain extent, they're at least trying to help you. You know, like. And probably what really needed to be done, they don't have the money or the backing to do because while this is, you know, a terrible Superfund site and probably one of the worst in the U.S., you know, they have other Superfund sites and also just standard other issues all throughout the country that just do not get addressed because they don't have the funding for it. Oh, for sure. Like the the EPA is dramatically underfunded. It, It always has been, but... Yeah, the just the idea though. You, I mean, you just said it. The idea that they would spend seventy thousand dollars on like a band aid fix, but then when it comes time to actually pay these people to like get to safety, they can't be bothered. Yeah, it's like the. I feel like one is when you're literally buying someone's property. I I I have to imagine that people get into weird territory where they're like, well, we're helping these people to you know it's not fixing an issue it's we're paying them for something that's what it seemed to be jim inhoff's you know position Mm -hmm. on it he didn't like doing that that was the sticking point for whatever reason that shot of those kids playing in the like the guy took the guy yeah the guy took you to like a lake and was like oh this looks like a lake but it's actually a sinkhole like the mine collapsed like 150 feet into this hole and then it's just filled with water and then the next shot there were like teenagers swimming in it like it was a, an actual pond like my god that's got to be so contaminated uh, yeah and so the entire other part of this documentary focuses on uh the native american side because they owned a large portion of where all like a large portion where all this had happened was on native american lands that they had been forced out of and then had also had stolen from them. So they didn't, they didn't even really get the benefit of leasing the lead back in like the thirties through the fifties or whatever. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on this Christian. This is a mess cover to cover. I mean, so much of U uh, S history with where natives are concerned is a mess cover to cover, but like this was shocking to me. Right. I mean, it, I guess selfishly, because this is sort of my job is is in the real estate industry. When they were talking about all this, I just wondered, like, if you wanted to buy a property here, could you get title insurance? Because, <laughs> like, there there are so many different competing claims where they moved the Native Americans up here and then the government forced leases on them and then started taking more land. Like, what insurer would would be like, yeah, you own this land outright without being like, oh, no, like the Native Americans have like a solid claim to this. Like you, you know, you're on your own if that comes through, which which with the prices people are talking about in these houses, it probably isn't that big of an issue because most of these houses seem like they're under one hundred thousand dollars. But it did make me wonder about that because 
I would not want to insure against a house here because I think the Native Americans had a pretty good claim to a lot of this land. Absolutely. Like the there's I mean, without even getting into the more recent developments, like that they were basically like nicely asked once out of obligation, please lease us your land for this mine. And if they said no, the gov the, the mining company went to the Department of the Interior in whatever it was, the forties or fifties, and said uh, we we want their land. Give us a reason to take it. And so the Department of the Interior went and said, basically, any native that's not selling to the mining company must be incompetent. And so yeah. we are going to become caretakers of their land and basically just took the title from them. Yeah, which is insane. And right now they basically left them holding the bag because all the other people were getting buyouts and natives Ooh. weren't getting buyouts and they can't even sell the land because it's a toxic dump, you know? And they're not going to be like they're not going to be allowed to be moved because this was the reservation that was established for them. Yeah, they they uh, the first thing the government told them at the end of this was essentially you can't put the toxic gravel back in the mine because the gravel is your only resource. Like the land is so ruined that the only way that the land can make you money is by selling this waste. And then after they did their environmental analysis, they said, oh, but you also can't sell the gravel because it's toxic. Right. So you can't do anything with it. It just has to sit there. Could you imagine dumping this back into the mine, though? That would like the waters are already so poisoned. Yeah, I don't I don't know what you would do. I you, I don't you, know if that would make the problem better or worse, because at least you don't have like the fine sand blowing around at the surface. But yeah, the, the water is the water is still screwed. I have to imagine you you literally need to ship it to somewhere and just dump it into a giant hole and then bury over it, which is really expensive to do. Yeah, and but it's going to have to be somewhere really specific because then it's just going to contaminate the groundwater there. Right, like you you need to, yeah. What did you you do? have to take it to Antarctica. There, right, they did like some like napkin math i think and they're like if you if you haul like 10 or 20 <laughs> trucks a day or whatever they said it was going to take like 10 years of just hauling to get it all out of there 40, 40 years i think they said if you had trucks round the clock dump trucks taking stuff out of here it was going to take 40 years and haul, which i believe is not this cheap who yeah so it it gets a little more complicated uh in summer of last year the Supreme Court essentially ruled that 50% of Oklahoma is still, like, legally native land. This is insane because I – it's funny you, you bring this up because, you know, I had tangentially saw a headline because I uh, – about um, the murder charges and jurisdiction. I didn't actually read anything about it. So reading your notes here, I'm blown away by this decision. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that the Supreme Court came down on, on the side of – the natives over Oklahoma, but yeah, essentially 50% of Oklahoma was five enormous native American reservations and they were kind of unofficially dissolved. The, the deal was that if uh, one of the native American families sold the, their property to anybody, but their own family, it was now no longer native land and the next sale could be to anybody. And so they kind of just pieced it out to the point now where the the quote-unquote reservation is just this weird patchwork of unconnected properties and uh but congress never officially dissolved the reservation so yeah last year through this insane convoluted process of appeals from this murder charge the supreme court came down and ruled that the reservation had never been formally dissolved and so all of these reservations still stand as they originally were established 
I, yeah, I mean, it is a huge amount of land. Like, like you said, it is half of Oklahoma. I, I'm curious, like, what the ramifications of that decision are, like, in an actual effect. You know, do things just continue as it on? Like, are they yeah. trying to take up more, more land? Like, I'm, I'm really curious. Essentially, I think what it boiled down to was that any Native American living inside those boundaries is not beholden to Oklahoma, like, criminal justice system. So, like, non-Natives living on that land can't be prosecuted by, like, the Native justice system, and Natives can't be prosecuted by the state of Oklahoma. Gotcha. That's crazy. I mean, that is literally crazy. But, yeah, this this plot of land that we're talking about here definitely falls into one of these reservations and so it's it's yeah they the government bought up all this land from all these people and then essentially just dumped it back to this tribe and now they're gonna have to deal with it man that's unfortunate so a little bit of i guess background or since this documentary the town of uh I think it's Pritcher, Pitcher, uh, officially dissolved in 2013. So it seems like most people are out of there as of 2015 when the buyout completed. And now it is literally just the natives problem. Yeah. Who? Yeah, this was this was rough. <laughs> as, as this kept going, I just kept saying, like, this sucks, man. <laughs> I think the the only other thing that I, I wanted to mention was the very last bit of this documentary. They mentioned that a lot of the contaminants have continued flowing downstream into what is essentially like a, a more uh, like a, a wealthier por- portion of the population's vacation homes all sit on this lake. <laughs> yeah. And so they were like, well, I mean, Jim Imhoff has a, has a house on this lake. So maybe now that it's going to start affecting him and his buddies, maybe something might actually get done about it. Yeah, I I mean, again, this is one that's like hard to look up. I'm curious, like how toxic that lake is now. Yeah, because it was even like the next lake downriver they had found lead in tin and, and all sorts of stuff in. And they were saying, I wouldn't swim here. Well, I mean, it's not only like swimming. Um, that stuff gets in the fish. You eat the fish. It gets like it's a whole it's a whole thing. So if it starts oh, yeah. getting in like the fish and the wildlife, you know, people start accumulating it, even if they don't swim in the lake, if they happen to eat the food or whatever. So it affects a lot of the recreational industries. So looking at this, this one, not too many people have actually watched this. I I looked (laughs) it up on Rotten Tomato. There's no critic score. And the audience score right now is at 62% with only 15 reviews. Oh, geez. So would you recommend our audience check this out? I think I would. It, it's. It, I mean, if you're interested in this kind of thing, it was fascinating to me because I, like I said, I'd literally never heard of it. I, I couldn't believe something this big was still ongoing and, and it wasn't even on my radar. So I, I found it very interesting. And it's not say, that long. It's, it's only an hour and 15 minutes. Right. I, I will say it is interesting and it is short. So like you said, if this is something that sounds interesting to you, I would I would watch it. But otherwise, I I don't know. I don't think I would suggest this for anyone to just check out because (laughs) it is a very specific topic. And like we touched on earlier, it is, I don't want to say it's amateurish because it's better than, you know, an amateur doing it. But it it is very low budget. And I feel like it kind of shows through a part. So like this isn't one that I'm like, this is a life changing documentary, you know. (laughs) 
so recently you went back and watched a uh, an animated show from I believe the like the early or the the mid like two thousand teens uh, called Over the Garden Wall. Now what is what's this about? Because I've seen this around. I've always heard that it's really good. Yeah, so this actually was not on my radar at all until HBO Max came out and it appeared there. So I was under the impression this was actually a recently released show. (laughs) (laughs) And until literally looking up the Wikipedia article for taking some notes on this, like an hour ago, that I found out that this was originally (laughs) released over a period of a week in November of 2014. (laughs) So it's been out a while, but it is... Uh, So the basic premise is it is the story of two brothers who get lost in the woods who are trying to find their way home. And the the main selling point of this is the art style. Uh, The best I can describe it as is like 19th or 20th century Americana, like and mixed with sort of adventure time, but not as whimsical. Uh, Well, like, I guess with not as loose designs and stuff, because there are whimsical elements to this, but... The art style is like, I don't want to say like dark because parts of it are very dark, but you know, it, it's mm. not like upbeat and cheery. It is <laughs> rural feeling, if that makes sense. Like the, the tones are muted and grays and greens and stuff. It's it's crazy. I, I've honestly never seen anything like it in, um, in a cartoon. The way you're describing this, it... Um... It sounds like something I'm absolutely probably going to watch this week. I, I've gotten on a big kick of like American folk horror. And, and so the idea of just kind of like rural tones and like getting lost in the woods is very appealing to me right now. Yeah, it's it is very good. And not only not only like the art style evokes that uh, the music feels very like, again, I would describe it as like 19th or 20th century Americana. Like the music is so weird but it fits this so well. The <laughs> only thing I, I have, like, they have, like, two two or three episodes, like, they have them singing to these just, like, weird songs with, like, the animation, but it works. The, the closest thing I could describe it to is there is this French animator who, as an excuse for his music, just creates these crazy um, cartoon music videos with an animation style based off, like, old disney or old um like warner brothers looney tunes stuff Hmm. and and it's like really trippy and i would check him out if this sounds cool to you his name is mcbess and his music videos are insane um but that's the closest (laughs) thing i've been able to come to with like the combination of this music and the animation style that's yeah this sounds pretty cool are there any uh uh i guess not actors are there are there any big voice actors that are a part of this Yes, this also was crazy to me. Uh, Elijah Wood is one of the two main characters he voices throughout, and Christopher Lloyd is a, another one of the recurring characters. Huh. It's Which, an unlikely combo, but I'm into it. Yeah, like it is, again, this is like a Cartoon Network miniseries. It's crazy to me <laughs> that they got those big names on this. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Also, what's what's so I haven't really even described the plot other than they're trying to get home. Well, like every episode is more or less self-contained until maybe the last two or three when they all kind of blend together to for the finale, which is nice. This this cartoon does have like a beginning and an end. There's nothing past it. It's only 10 episodes. You're in and you're out. Uh, but every episode is more or less standalone and you 
they they meet a bunch of different characters in the woods and some of them are horrifying some of them are funny like they're different creatures like it and it's crazy uh one of the recurring characters is a girl who had been her who had her family turned into bluebirds by a witch and she's trying to take that spell off of her you meet like a woodsman who's trying to keep a lantern lit because there's the the main antagonist known as the beast is hunting throughout the woods and that keeps him at bay like there's just so much uh like going on in in the background and stuff and that's like where the horror elements come in and it's it's so well done oh yeah this sounds like a full core that i'm gonna be really into i will i will say this is maybe this is one of the best cartoons i have ever watched um the the fact that it's only 10 11 minute episodes helps with that like i really like adventure time and stuff which the guy who the the lead guy on this had worked on adventure time and the adventures of flapjack or the misadventures of flapjack i forget the the technical title of that um but it's like something i i never i've never seen before the characters are great like wart who is voiced by elijah wood is very much um like the straight man in this and his brother who is younger named greg is a doofus but at the end of the day he's like a a good soul and he ends up kind of being like the like they work off each other well where one's very pessimistic and one's optimistic uh and it's just it's it's very good i i highly recommend this i don't want to get into it more because i don't even though it's like six six or seven years old at this point i do not want to spoil it because there's like a twist i did not see coming at the end like this cartoon subverts expectations in almost every episode and then sometimes re-subverts those expectations like it always (laughs) keeps you on your feet it's it's so well done that's awesome it's it's like I'm not the only one who likes this on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics have this at a 92 percent, and the audience has this at a 100 percent score. Ooh, wow, <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. Yes, this is one I highly suggest checking out if you have you know two and a half hours or whatever to watch. <laughs> And now it's time for our Amazon review game. Just a quick recap of the rules. I have three one-star reviews from Amazon for a movie. I'm going to read the first one to Christian. He will have two yes or no questions to help him narrow down what the movie is. He can then either guess the movie or he can ask for a second review. I will then read the second review. Christian will get two more yes or no questions and he can either guess or ask for a third review. After the third review, Christian will have two more yes or no questions. Then he has to guess. We are keeping track this year, and if Christian gets it on the first clue, he gets three points, two points for the second clue, one point for the third review, zero points for missing it. Christian, are you ready? I'm ready. I remember when this movie came out, I thought it looked good. I watched a review of it, and the guy didn't like it, but I thought, eh, what the heck, I can watch it during work anyways. I should have taken his advice. This movie is so boring and stupid. The end of the movie shows us that nothing that happened even really happened, so there was no point. Ooh. Oh, man. Nothing that happened even really happened. Oh, man, I'm trying to think of, like, frustrating dream sequences. (laughs) Uh, Does this movie have... Hmm. No, I guess. Uh, was this movie released in the last 10 years? 
Yes. Mm. I don't know. I'm going to need another review. Do you want a second guess or a second clue? I'm I'm struggling to even think of of what to ask. I guess is this a sci-fi movie? I wouldn't call this a hard sci-fi movie, but I think there can be you would consider parts of it have some sci-fi elements, but not like hard sci-fi elements. Okay, yeah, then I definitely need a second review. Movie that doesn't even rise to the level of so bad it's fun to watch. It boasts a decent budget, a mostly good cast, and good CGI for the time, but nothing gels and it gets harder to watch the further in you go. It tries too hard to be a girl, spelled G-R-R-L, power movie. (laughs) Since I am not a girl, G-R-R-L, or a woman... Maybe I'm just not its audience. Still, I have to give it one star. Who? Okay, I think maybe I was on the wrong track with dream sequences. Uh, does this movie have uh, Vanessa Hudgens? Yes. Oh, well then it's The Night Before Christmas. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, she's in that. <laughs> um, it is uh, Sucker Punch. Yes, it is. <laughs> Oh, nice. What a great movie. Uh, I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I watched that and I think I started saying how much I loved it ironically until it like kind of became true. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) All right, before we head out, Christian, what are you going to be checking out this week? So Amazon is now recommending me like a whole gauntlet of environmental docus- documentaries and docudramas. So I'm probably going to <laughs> uh, be burning through some of those and just kind of getting bummed out. Uh, but I'm almost certainly not going to watch uh, Garden Wall. I'm pretty excited about that. That's a good pick. Um, this week, I, you know, I've just been meandering through some games. I picked up Dragon's Crown for like six fifty this week. <laughs> uh, I've always wanted to play it. It's a sort of like a side-scrolling beat-em-up mixed with an RPG mixed with Dungeons and Dragons. It's it's been pretty cool so far, but it's one I'm probably not going to complete anytime soon because it looks like it takes about forty-five to fifty hours to platinum, and I'm <laughs> sort of just playing it whenever I feel like it. Otherwise, oh, the big one I'm actually watching, and it's this show has finally caught me after three seasons. The third season of Disenchantment came out, and this <laughs> is the first season where I'm like, I am actually hooked and looking forward to watching the next episodes. <laughs> Netflix has been advertising that to me, and I still haven't watched season two, so maybe I'll try to get back into it. We'll see. It, it's one of those weird shows, man, where the first season, I was like, it's okay, and then the last episode hooked me. Second season started out strong, and then it kind of meandered, and then the last episode hooked me again. This season has pretty consistently kept me hooked because it's become more serialized. Like, there's a continuing story, unlike the first couple seasons where it's like there were some arcs and then just some nothing, you know, like just standalone episodes where I I think it actually, surprisingly, for a macaroni cartoon, works better um, being, like, you know, having one big story to follow. Yeah
Thanks for listening, guys. If you'd like to contact us, we are at Gambots Network on Twitter, or you can email us at gambots.blog at gmail.com. Also, we have a website now if you want to check that out. That's gambotsnetwork.com. And finally, if you're listening to somewhere where you can rate and subscribe, we'd appreciate it as that does help with marketing. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.